Hello and welcome to this message from the river. We hope that this message from Pastor Billy Pate inspires and challenges you towards a greater relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let's join Pastor Billy Pate for another exciting message. You say come to the are blessed today to have one of our great staff members come and share the Word of God this morning. Josh and Carolyn have been a blessing to our church, and uh, God has just sent them here. I believe that with all my heart, and I am so blessed to have them in our lives personally, but we're blessed as a church to have them as part of our church family, and I'm going to ask Josh to come, Pastor Josh, to come and share the Word this morning. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. I love you guys. They're going to clap for anything. (laughs) I am a little nervous. I am used to talking to anywhere between fifth grade and babies. So when Pastor asked me to talk to the adults this morning, I asked him if I can bring my sock puppet, and he said no. So kids in the service, I apologize. That's why you have crayons and coloring sheets, because I couldn't bring my sock puppet. Sorry. This morning, I, uh, I feel like God has laid a message upon my heart for this church and us as a whole, not, not just you, but me also. Whenever I bring the word, it tends to be that God has given me something that he's usually speaking to me about also, because um, we're all in this boat together, amen? We're all doing life together. But the title of my sermon this morning is called, Love Takes a Detour, and there should be a slide that's going to go up, and I want to I know, what do you feel like when you see this next slide? How does it make you feel? Anybody? How does that make you feel when you see that when you're driving down the road? Frustrated, angry, shaking your head. (laughs) You probably aren't saying to yourself, oh good, I get to take a detour. Instead, you might feel a little anxious because you're not sure where this detour will take you. Or you might feel frustrated because you are pressed for time and this detour will mess up your schedule. I am a frustrated driver. Let me tell you, I'm completely honest this morning. I, the littlest thing driving makes me frustrated for some reason. I mean, a bug hitting right in the middle of my line of sight makes me angry when I drive. So detour signs to me, they're uh uh-uh. My wife has been with me where we have come across a detour sign, and I will just turn around. I won't even take the detour. I'm like, we're going a different way. I'm not even going to bother with this because I hate detour signs. And um, growing up in California, I remember the detour I hate the most that we took often was from the desert in California down into San Bernardino Valley, there's a pass, and it's called Cajon Pass, and you got to take it to get down to the valley. And every year there was fires in the area, or there were major accidents on this pass. And when they detoured you off this pass, it was two hours. There's no easy way around it. We would leave for a holiday to go see my grandma, and we would check, and everything would be fine. And right as we got to that pass, an accident would happen. Detour signs would go up, and we're like, we're going to be in the car for four hours for a two-hour drive. Thank you, Jesus. We didn't say that. We said other things. But nobody likes a detour. (laughs) But what if you were driving and you saw two signs? One said, detour ahead, but the other said, take your usual route. It was completely your choice. Which would you take? I'll be honest, I'd probably take my usual route. Um, Most of us would take our usual route, especially if you knew that the detour would cost you time, money, or personal frustration. Today we're going to talk about detours, not necessarily detours that you might encounter while driving, but we're going to talk about detours when you're traveling the highway of life, life detours. 
Some detours in life come at you and you can't choose to take your normal route. An illness, a layoff from a job, a spouse who leaves you, losing a child. There are things that you just, you can't avoid. You can't take your normal route when that happens. But there are other times in your life where you have a choice to get off your normal path and take a detour. A detour that can help somebody. Are you the kind of person who will follow the sign that says take your usual route or detour ahead? This morning we're going to talk about a person in the Bible who decided to take a detour on his road of life. You've probably heard of him. He's known as the Good Samaritan. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, but the verses will also be up at the screen. Starting at verse 25 this morning, it says, or it doesn't say, but we're going to look at the context of this story. As as I read this, I want you to notice the motive behind the question that is asked to Jesus in this passage. It says, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to have eternal life, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Sometime during the Judean part of the Jesus ministry, he encounters a person called Nomikos, or an expert of the law. The people of that time respected these lawyers in their community as leaders and professional interpreters of the law. They had at least three areas of professional duty. First, they explained the requirements of the law, which were the first five books of the Old Testament, to ordinary people. Secondly, they kept alive in the memory of they kept alive the memory of past leaders like the prophets. And thirdly, they trained others in knowledge of this law. In this encounter between Jesus and the lawyer, the Bible says the lawyer had an underlying motive. Did you catch the motive behind the question? The motive was to test Jesus. The expert called Jesus teacher, but he was trying to give the teacher a test. This properly schooled lawyer was testing the popular but not un- but unofficial teacher to see if he could expose the crowd that Jesus couldn't handle a tough theological question. Jesus didn't go for it, though. And since he was a teacher, he gave the test right back to the expert. Jesus asked him, what was written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, Jesus says, you're the expert. Don't you know the answer? The lawyer can't resist the temptation to show off his theological sophistication. So he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. His answer actually shows a lot of insight. Jesus then reveals his authority over the man by the essentially giving him a grade. He says, in effect, you're right. You get an A plus for that answer. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He asks him, or Jesus does stop there. He says, do this and you will live. This man was an expert of, in knowing, but not in doing. Jesus is saying that it isn't enough to know the right answer, but we must do the right answer. There are many people who are good at talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Back in 2006, there was a, a man, he was a 29-year-old. His name was Johnny Lechner. He graduated from the University of Wisconsin after being a full-time student for 12 years. 12 years. Lechner said he would stay longer if he could. He just said, I'm broke. Um, I've got no more money. He said, I could stay longer, but I can't. He goes, the schedule's laid back. You're around all kinds of educated people all the time. And we're just all broke together. He likes it. He says, it's not like the real world. 
12 years, full-time student. What would you do if Johnny was your son? You'd probably be a little frustrated. Give him the boot. <laughs> You'd probably advise him to grow up, join the real world, and contribute to society. But when it comes to Christianity, a lot of people do what Johnny Lechner did. They stay in the safe environment. They do their Bible studies, but they never go into the real world and put into practice what they know. Now we're going to go to verse 29. This is an important verse, and I want you to, again, notice the motive behind the question here. This is the key to unlocking the meaning of the rest of the passage we're going to go into. In verse 29, it says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In a characteristic lawyer fashion, he wants to define himself by narrowly defining a word. What is your definition of the neighbor, he asked Jesus. The classic interpretation for neighbor by the Jews at that time meant one who is near. By near, I mean near in terms of race or religion. Their neighbors were the ones who were doing life right next to them. The lawyer, to the lawyer, love your neighbor meant love those of your own race and religion. And you have fulfilled this law. If the person doesn't fit these qualifications, then they aren't a neighbor and the law doesn't apply to them. The Bible tells us that the lawyer's first motive is to test Jesus. What is the word the Bible uses to reveal a second motive? His motive was to justify himself. In the Bible, the word justify normally means to be made right with God. But that's not what it means here. This expert, this lawyer of the law, isn't trying to make himself right with Jesus. The word justify in this passage means that this man was trying to excuse himself. He was excusing himself from following the command to love his neighbor. He was doing the same thing that a gentleman by the name of W.C. Fields meant when he was found reading his Bible on his deathbed. And he said, I'm looking for loopholes. Fields was looking for a loophole. He wanted to know how little he could do he was trying to justify his inaction. I believe as Christians, we look for loopholes. We look for reasons to justify why well, we're not out there doing what God has called us to do. And this is the key to understanding Jesus' response. The problem with the man's question was that he was trying to justify himself from not loving his neighbor, even though he, need, he knew it to be the second greatest commandment. Contrary to what most people think, the parable of the Good Samaritan isn't just about we should help people in need. The parable also is about excuses. It's about self-justification. This isn't just the lawyer's problem, it's our problem today. We often justify ourselves from not helping others. We tell ourselves that we can't help somebody because it's too dangerous. It's too involved, it's too time-consuming, or we don't have enough money. These are all reasons we use for excuses. We're going to continue on in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to a place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Before we continue on the rest of the story, I want us to notice the cast of characters here. We have a group of robbers, a man who gets robbed and beaten, 
so badly that he's beaten half to death, it says. Then we have three main characters. The first is a priest. The priest in Israel were the supreme importance and they were a high-ranking people. They were the ones who offered the sacrifices to God on behalf of everybody else. The Levites weren't quite as honored as the priests, but they were nonetheless the privileged group in society and responsible for the liturgy and protecting the temple. So far, Jesus has mentioned a priest and a Levite, and I'm assuming that the lawyer was thinking the third person he was going to mention would probably be a Jew. Because the original hearers would have thought a Jew would be the one who would show up on the scene. But the third character is a big surprise. Jesus said a Samaritan king. It's like saying there's Papa Bear, there's Mama Bear, and you skip past Baby Bear and you go to a skunk. That would be the, the difference there. Samaritans were despised by the Jews. Some 700 years earlier, Israel was invaded by Assyria. Assyria exiled tens of thousands of Israelite captives. And they resettled the area with people from other parts of the Assyrian Empire. The Jews that remained and the foreigners that moved in lived together, had children, and became a new people. Their descendants were the Samaritans of Jesus' time. Those Samaritans believed in the law. They worshipped at Mount Gerizim rather than Jerusalem. They were considered to be half-breeds and heretics by the Jews. The racial and religious contempt between these two groups was intense and at times even violent. By using a Samaritan, Jesus is pointing out that it doesn't matter what you call yourself, it's the same today. Lots of people call themselves Christians who are not Christians. A poll conducted uh, back in the later 2000s by the Barna Group found that 84% of people in the United States identify themselves as Christians. Ask yourself, do more than 8 out of 10 people you know love Christ and show it? We're going to continue reading at Luke 10.33, and it says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them, to the innkeeper, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think the which of these which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, "The one who had mercy on him." Jesus told him, "Go and do likewise." Jesus uses the example of the good Samaritan to show us a person who looked past excuses to stop and help. The good Samaritan chose to get off his usual route and decided to take a divine detour on his highway of life. This morning, there's four points I want to make and four reasons I want to justify, not justify, but I want to unjustify you using these reasons of not getting off your road on for a detour. See, the good Samaritan, he took a detour that took a risk. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell on the hands of the robbers. They stripped him in his clothes and beat him half to death. The, the man took a risk, and this road that he traveled down, it was a bad road. Everybody knew it. Actually, believe it or not, we're, we're in Carolyn, where we're from in Colorado. There's a town we're not from Telluride, but we've been to Telluride. 
It's a southwestern Colorado. It's known for being a great resort and ski town, but it didn't always have that reputation. Back in the Wild West days, the road to Telluride was so full of robbers that the town got its name from the contraction to Hell You Ride. Yeah. The 17-mile road from Jerusalem to Jericho had the same kind of reputation and a similar kind of infamous name. Because of the numbers of robbers along this road, it was known as the Way of the Blood. This road descends some 3,300 feet through the desert and rocky country that could easily hide robbers. The robbers on this road were dangerous. Even if a person didn't have much, they would rob him just for his clothing. That's what happened to this man in the story that Jesus told. But they didn't just rob him. They beat him, leaving him half dead. When the Samaritan stopped to help, he knew he was on a dangerous road. He maybe even thought, what if the robbers come back? What if they're watching to see if anybody stops? What if they get him next? But the good Samaritan didn't use risk as a justification to act. Sometimes we justify ourselves not helping someone in need because we are afraid of the risk to us. Now I'll admit there are times when taking a risk just is not smart. In Colorado, there were some jails here and there and placed radically throughout the state. And they were it was a heavy highway you travel, and you know when you were near jail or or a prison because there'd be a sign that says, don't pick up hitchhikers, right? And if you see somebody, if you see that sign, you see somebody in orange jumps you with their thumb out, you're not going to stop, right? That's probably a good reason to not stop, just telling you. But most of the time, the problem isn't that we take too many risks, it's that we don't take any risk at all. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the first question the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question and said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? When's the last time you stopped and said, if I do not stop to help these people or this person, what will happen to them? If you're going to love your neighbor, don't use risks as an excuse to hold back what God wants you to do. The second thing is a detour that took personal involvement. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. When the Samaritan sees the wounded man, he doesn't go over to the other side of the road. Instead, he has sincere compassion for him. He bandages up the man's wounds, perhaps using his own head covering, or by tearing strips of his garment. He also pours oil and wine on the wounds. Olive oil was used to keep the cut skin supple, and the wine was used to help clean the wound out and keep the infection out. The traveling Samaritan wasn't afraid to get personally involved. Unfortunately, there was a man by the name of Clive Collins. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was 65 years old. He didn't have someone like the Samaritan around. Collins was opening his car trunk in a parking lot in Bosco, England, when the manhole cover that he was standing above tipped and he fell in. He slipped down into a five-foot hole. Collins told the BBC News probably about 15 or 20 people walked by. The more I called out, the seemly less to notice me. What surprised me is that they didn't make eye contact. A woman actually parked alongside my camper and put the hood up on her car 
I said, can you please call me an ambulance? And she refused to acknowledge the fact that I was even there. Colin said one shopper did acknowledge him, but did nothing to help. One chap looked straight at me in his car, driving by very slowly by, and I waved. He waved back, and then he carried on. Despite suffering broken bones, he managed to get his mobile phone out of his pocket and call 999, which is the English version of 911. He needed 47 stitches and a treatment for two broken ribs, a chipped tooth, and a strained groin. The BBC News didn't report on whether most of the shoppers were priests or Levites, but there were no Samaritans there that day. Some people use the excuse of not wanting to get personally involved in helping someone in need, but the Samaritan did not use the excuse. He didn't wait for somebody else. He didn't just call 911 or phone the pastor to get involved. I'm going to reread that line. He didn't wait for somebody else to get involved. The Good Samaritan didn't call 911 or call the pastor to show up. He did the work. He didn't write a check either. He got involved. He was moved with compassion toward action. He got in the ditch with the man. He got close and bandaged the man's room. He probably came out of the ditch looking a little dirty and some blood on him. If you're going to love your neighbor, don't use personal involvement as an excuse to hold yourself back. Me and my wife right now, we're going through the process of fostering and adopting, and I love having the conversation with different people in our life. And uh, a lot of the times when you have that conversation with different people, a lot of the excuses people use is, I would love the kid too much to give him back. I could never do that because I wouldn't want to give the babies back as the excuse they use. Their excuses they would love too much. People don't want to get personally involved because they're scared of getting attached. I don't think you can ever love too much. You can love not enough. Keeps you from taking the detour. Amen. A detour that took time. See, the Samaritan put the man up on his donkey and continued on down the road. He slowed himself down, not just in the wrapping and the taking care of his body, but he actually slowed his trip down. Because that weight was going to slow the donkey down. He took the time to stop. There wasn't an emergency room where the Samaritan could take the man. and said he took him to a hotel and cared for the man himself that night. Sometimes we use our schedules to justify not helping people in need. In fact, this might be the most common excuse of them all. I just don't have time. In Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference, there's a story in there. It was an experiment that was used as a college. There was a seminary, and the story goes on to say that they had, they had some young men coming up who wanted to be pastors, young men and women. And what they did is they gave them a specific topic to preach off of, and it was the Good Samaritan. And they gave them a certain amount of time to prepare. And then they were sending them from one building to the other. And when they got to the other building, they were going to present to the crowd. They were just kind of testing their skills to see how well they preach in a couple minutes of preparation. Well, what they did in this experiment is they put a man in between the buildings laying on the side of the road to see if they would stop. I mean, they're preparing to preach the Good Samaritan. You would think, hey, they're going to help somebody. 
Well, in this experiment, it says that they told half the group, they go into the room they were in, and they say, you know what, it's running a little quicker. you got a couple minutes. you got to get over there and get it done. Go now. And they take off running out of their building. 10% of those people stopped to help. 10%. The other group, they would say, you know what, you got a few, you got five or ten extra minutes. Go ahead and head over there. Have a seat, have a coffee and a donut. You got some time. And it was 64% of those people stopped and helped. Time will keep you from taking a, high, a life detour. When it comes to helping those in need and loving our neighbors, the greatest ability is availability. If you're going to love your neighbor, don't use time as an excuse to hold you back with what God wants you to do. Amen? A detour that took money. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him and said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. If you read between the lines here, it seems that the Samaritan was a merchant who regularly traveled this road. He had stayed at this inn before. He gives the innkeeper money to take care of the man who stays there a while. Then he promises the innkeeper, who apparently knows him, because he can trust the Samaritan, that he would be back to reimburse him for any additional cost. The Samaritan didn't use money as an excuse not to act. John Michael Jessett, a teenager, staggered into a fast food restaurant after being hit by a car. He was thrown from his bike and also scraped his knee, arms, and hands. But when he asked for some ice to put on his wounds, he was told he had to pay for it. The charge was 99 cents for a cup, plus 5 cents for tax. They were going to charge him the price of a small soda. John Michael said he would never go to that restaurant again. Sometimes we justify not helping those in need because it's going to hit the pocketbook. The Samaritan did not use this as an excuse. He made financial sacrifices to help the man in need. The two silver coins represented two days' wages back then. Even more, the Samaritan said that he would take care of any extra expenses as well once he returned from his trip. And we all know how much those little cokes cost in the room. Come on. He knew what he was getting into. Margaret Thatcher once said, no one would have you remembered the good Samaritan no one would have remembered the good Samaritan if he'd only had good intentions. He had money as well. Many times it may take money to help your neighbor in need. If you're going to love your neighbor, don't use money as an excuse to hold back. Amen? Now let's look at this passage as a whole again. Did Jesus answer the question, who's your neighbor? He did. Your neighbor isn't necessarily someone who lives next to you. Your neighbor is, is anyone in need, anyone you can help. But notice that Jesus did more than answer that question. He asked the expert in the Old Testament, which of these three do you think the neighbor, was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In other words, Jesus changed the focus of the question from who is my neighbor to what kind of neighbor are you? What kind of neighbor are you this morning?
coming into this room, I love the story of the Good Samaritan. My wife will tell you, my family will tell you, I am a, I am a shirt off my back Samaritan. I don't care. There have been numerous times in our marriage in three years where she's like, why are you giving that person money? We don't have this bill. And I'm like, it'll be fine. God will take care. But you can't, you can't allow God to take care if you don't take a chance. A lot of us have good intentions. But when do you actually use those intentions for something good? Amber, if you want to come up here, I'm going to wrap up. The good Samaritan in this story disadvantaged himself to advantage somebody else. Hear that again, people. The good Samaritan disadvantaged himself to advantage somebody else. When is the last time you disadvantaged yourself? When's the last time you took a step back and said, not me, not this time, and you looked to somebody else? Our spiritual journey calls us beyond managing our to-do list and into, and into a faith-in-action lifestyle that welcomes divine detours. Opportunities to demonstrate God's love to people in need. I have one more story, and we're going to wrap up here. And it's not a me story, it's, it's a movie, but I didn't want to show the clip. It's a movie called Robots, came out quite a few years ago. It wasn't the best movie ever. It was a little kid-friendly movie. And there's a scene where they're at a parade, and Romney Copperbottom's father points out a giant balloon in the image of Mr. Bigwell. Romney wants to know who it is, and Mr. Copperbottom says, Bigwell, the greatest robot in the whole world. Rodney is confused. He says, I thought you were the greatest robot in the world, Dad. Dad laughs and says, besides me, he's the head of Big Weld Industry. He tells Rodney that Big Weld is an inventor who makes life better for everyone around him. Rodney is impressed and wants to meet Big Weld, and his father tells him that someday he just might. Rodney asks, Dad, what, what do you do? And his father proudly says that he works at a fancy restaurant. He says, I'm a dishwasher. Later, Rodney is very excited because Big Weld's show is coming, is coming on, and he calls for his father to watch. Dad says he is coming, but that he will have to work while he watches because his boss has been piling it up at him, piling up the work on him. Big Weld appears on the screen and says that he is going to give viewers a tour of Big Weld Industries starting at the front gate, but the front gate is closed. He asks Tim, the gatekeeper, why the gate is not open. Tim stammers and says, well, I thought, but Bigwell kindly scolds. Oh, we never shut the gate. Tim shutting, shutting the gate means shutting our fresh ideas. Bigwell exclaims that robots come from all over bringing new ideas and that he listens to each one carefully. Different robots demonstrate their inventions. Bigwell turns to the camera and says, so remember, whether a robot is made of new parts Old parts or spare parts, you can shine no matter what you're made of. 
Rodney, whose parts have always been hand-me-downs from cousin, looks at his father and says, he's talking about me, Dad. His father replies, he sure is, son. Bigwell continues explaining his company philosophy about invention. He says, he says he likes to tinker with things, but all tinkering has to begin with a good idea. So look around for a need and start coming up with ideas to fill that need. He says, that's good, he says that good ideas will build on another until finally you accomplish your goal. See a need, feel a need. Don't get me wrong, as a Christian, I believe that God can divinely place needs in front of you, but God isn't going to place a need there unless you're looking for it. Amen? God, God just doesn't, I don't think he works like that all the time. It's faith, it's believing on our part to want to see the need to actually see it. If y'all want to stand, we're going to close. And I have a simple. I have a simple altar this morning. When was the last time you looked for a need? I mean, even this morning, a need was presented before you as praying for people signing up to to just stand there and wait for people to come to you and pray for them. That's a need. You can't tell me that there, there ain't needs that you see on a regular basis. But a lot of times I feel as Christians, the needs we see are our needs and we can't get around our own needs to look to somebody else's needs. But this morning, I challenge you. This week, I challenge you. See a need and feel a need. Take a risk. Some of you in this room, you'll never take a risk. This week, take that risk. Step out in faith. Believe that God's going to help you. See, the thing about feeling a need is it's not my strength feeling it. It's God through me feeling it. When's the last time you let God fill you up to overflow onto somebody? You can walk out of here and you can say, you know what, Pastor Josh, I'm going to find a need and I'm going to fill it. But when's the last time you let God fill you up? When me and Pastor bring the word on a weekly basis, me to the kids and Pastor in here, I can't bring you the word unless it's in me, amen? I can't feel a need in here unless I've been filled up. When's the last time you stopped and you said, God, fill me? God, fill me up and let me overflow. Take a risk. Get personal about it. Don't be scared to love on somebody that may not love you back or may hurt you. Because even if they hurt you, God's in control. Amen. Personally involve yourself in this need. Take some time. Get off your time schedule. God knows what you're doing. God knows what your day looks like. Take some time. Don't be scared to pick the kids up a little late. Don't be scared to burn dinner if you're not home to pull it out of the oven. Take some time and believe God to watch over the rest of your time. And it may cost you a couple dollars to buy somebody a cup of coffee. 
But I'm sorry, last time I checked, God's word says that everything given to us, he gave to us. It's not ours. So use it to fill a need and believe that God will give it back to you in a different form. Here's what I'm going to do. If you're in here this morning and you say, you know what, Pastor Josh, out of those four detours, money, time, personal involvement, and risk, you say, I struggle with one of those detours in my life. I struggle to let go of this. I struggle to move past this fear in my life. But you say, today, I want God to fill that gap. I want you to raise your hand this morning. You say, I, I want to trust in God to fill those spots and allow me to take a risk. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for the hands that were raised in this place. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to speak to your people this morning. I don't take that lightly. And God, I pray, Lord, that as we go on this week, God, that we would find a need. That, God, we would keep our eyes open to it. That we would not wait for you to dump something or someone in our lap, God, but we would walk out these doors and we would look with our eyes. Father God, that need may be cutting a neighbor's grass in their yard if they're older. Father, that need may be taking somebody's trash can in. It doesn't have to be a financial huge need. It could be anything. But God, make us aware of those needs. God, I pray this morning, God, that your people, God, would find time for you this week to fill them up. I pray, God, that we would allow ourselves to be open vessels, to be filled by you, to overflow to this community. That we would find a need, God. Meet a need. Thank you for this. We hope you have enjoyed and been encouraged by this message. We'd love for you to join us at the river on Sunday mornings at 945 for Sunday school and at 1030 for morning worship. We also provide our midweek service for all ages on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. If you would like to support the various ministries at the river, please go to our giving tab. We would love for you to visit us at 1110 South Preston Street in Burkrenet, Texas. And as always, we encourage you to come experience life with us at the river. Till I found myself.